Hello, and welcome to The Delicious Truth with Gloria Cotton. I'm Gloria. During this podcast, we're going to cover a variety of topics that are impacting our everyday lives. We'll look at four things for each topic. One, the absolute empirical truth. That's all about the facts and data. Then we'll look at the personal experiential truth. And that's about how those facts and others do and don't show up in people's lives and their experience of them. Next, the consequential, impactful truth. The difference this makes in people's lives. And finally, you'll hear about resources and solutions you can use to empower yourself and others. Hello, 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 and welcome to this episode of the Delicious Truth Podcast with me. Yes, I'm Gloria Cotton. Listen, I am too excited to introduce you to the guest for this episode, Mr. John Bird. Let me give you a little bit of background about John. First of all, I met this man like maybe 20 something years ago. He is a diversity and inclusion practitioner as am I, diversity, equity, and inclusion now. And I got to tell y'all that the man is a wonderful, smart, beautiful, uh, kind, I mean, just inside and out the kind of person you would want to be your friend. So that's the first thing I want y'all to know. I love this man from the first time I saw him to every time I have the opportunity to work with him just reinforces that love. So there you go, John, you need anything, baby, you know, you can reach out to me. So let me tell y'all a little bit about John. He has a master's degree in mental health counseling. He's a trained clinician. But what John says is, I quickly had to choose between doing clinical mental health work or community slash organizational work. So he chose to work with communities and organizations. And he's been doing that for 35 years. Now, a little bit more about John is that he is an enrolled member of the Blackfeet Nation. John, I want to say thank you. Thank you so much. Welcome to the Delicious Truth Podcast, baby. Um, thank you, Gloria. <laughs> the first thing I want you to help us understand is what is it about the Blackfeet Nation? A little bit of history about who they, you are. Let me just start off by um, introducing myself the way that I would introduce myself to a Blackfoot speaking audience. So what I told you is my Blackfoot name is Elk Child. Um, and that's a name that I've carried with me for since I was young. Um, given to me by one of my uncles who was, uh, was a medicine man. And, um, the other thing that I said is, uh, I am, I'm Scott Bipikani, which is what we call ourselves in Blackfoot. There originally are three Blackfoot tribes, the Pikani, Gainai, and Siksika. And those are three separate tribes that all speak the same language. They all kind of have the same culture, the same belief system, the same stories, the same mythology, um, all of that. Um, but they just had, uh, long ago, they separated into three separate political units. And then when 
Um, when the border was drawn between the U.S. and Canada, the, the Blackfoot people lived between the Yellowstone River and what's now Montana and the Saskatchewan River in Alberta, which is by Edmonton, Alberta. And so it was this huge area, you know, that ran from the Rocky Mountain front out onto the prairies for probably 300 miles out mm. onto the prairies. Mm-hmm. So like all of Montana practically and much of Alberta was what we what we call Kittawasanon, uh, our 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 homeland. And the literal translation of that word Kittawasanon is that it's it, it's 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 the place that nourishes us. It's the, mm. it's where we it's our food source. It's it's our it's our livelihood, um, and and so it keeps us alive. When they drew the border, it split the Pikani in two. And so now there's four tribes, the Southern Pikani, Omscopi Pikani. That's the Blackfeet Nation in Montana. There's another Pikani tribe in Alberta that called themselves Pikani, but they used to be the same tribe as us, and they mm-hmm. were split by the border. So they live in Alberta. They have a reservation there. The Kainai, in English, we call them the Bloods. And they have a reservation there in southern Alberta. And then further north by um, Calgary, there's a tribe called the Siksika or Blackfoot. And they're the northernmost of the Blackfoot tribes. So those are the those are the four tribes of the Blackfoot Confederacy, also known as Siksikaitsitapi, the Blackfoot people, the Blackfoot speaking people. So um, that's kind of how we, I, we identify ourselves there. Thank you. Thank you. And you say your the name your uncle gave you was Elk Child? Elk Child. Bonacapoca. Bonacapoca, right? Bonaca is elk and poca is child. Bonacapoca. Wow, wow, wow. wow. See, you're educating me. I thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) And I probably am going to in the near future, um, in our in our culture as we grow and we have accomplishments and things like that we can change our name to reflect those accomplishments and so in in our culture they used to send out the runners before mm-hmm. they got horses mm-hmm. they they would send out runners who would run out and they would locate the buffalo herds and um then they would come back and tell and then they would you know ready a plan to hunt them or another thing that they did was they would run them over a cliff and they would get enough meat for the whole winter. Oh, wow. um, but they call them the buffalo runners and they take off and they go out and they might surround a buffalo herd and they bring them in. And then they have a V-shaped formation that ends with dropping off over a cliff. And they would push them into that V-shaped formation. There would be people all along the way that, you know, keep them, keep them going in there. And so they would, you know, they would work together. I mean, talk about working together and collaborating and planning, you know, if everything was planned out, you know, yeah, if, yeah. They, well, if, they, if they could successfully do that, they would get food for the whole winter. Um, so how did one, they maintain that? How did they maintain the food so it didn't go bad in the winter? They dried it. Mm-hmm. Um, so like right after, if they had a big successful hunt like that, they would, they would immediately go, and start butchering all the all the animals and and cutting the meat and hanging it and drying it and smoking it 
Mm-hmm. And then they pick these berries that that grow up there that are really pulpy kind of blueberry things. They're, um, they call them a number of different things in English, Saskatoon berries or June berries, and they grow a lot on the prairies um, down along the rivers and things like that. But that's a, that's a Blackfoot delicacy. And so they pick a lot of those and they would grind them together, dry them and grind them all together. And then they would melt down, they would render the buffalo fat and marrow and they would pour it over it and they would make these big cubes of really highly nutritious food that they would eat in the winter when, you know, when there wasn't fresh food to eat, mm-hmm. That would, you know, that would get them through the winter. Wow. Wow. (laughs) You know what? In this world of COVID, we may have to go back to that. Right. (laughs) You know, I mean, we don't. So, so, so the the title of this podcast, I failed to mention before, was Working with Native American Communities. And so, what I want to ask right now, John, is how are the Native American communities being impacted by COVID? Like other communities of color, they're like like the African-American community and the Latino community. Mm-hmm. You know, the Native American community is much smaller, but they're being very, very greatly impacted by COVID. They're probably comparable to the African-American community. Mm-hmm. I, I would say, you know, and even Latino, you know, they're out here in the West, you know, there's the like, in Montana, there's, you know, there's not very many African-Americans, but, you know, the most of a lot of the COVID is, is popping up on the Indian reservations because, you know, because of the health disparities and, yeah. you know, the yeah. long, the long, the long list of issues around poverty and, and trauma and historical trauma, you know, that are, that are going on there. And so, it's a really highly vulnerable population, like like other communities of color in this country, mm-hmm. and so they're being disproportionately affected by um, by COVID. Mm-hmm. On some of the tribes, they've had really serious outbreaks, like at Navajo Nation here in Arizona, they've had a huge COVID outbreak, and they've lost hundreds of people. Oh. Um, um, to to COVID and they've had, you know, thousands of infections there, but they're turning the corner and, you know, they have a, the Navajo Nation has a very proactive president, Jonathan Nez, that, you know, has been out there working to, you know, get the COVID situation turned around and their numbers are coming down. Well, thank, uh, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for that. Thank you. Thank you. And I just pray that that will continue. You know, a, a, a reason I wanted you to be on here, as I said, is because I am woefully ignorant about, uh, and, and how shall I even talk about, shall I say, is it right to say Native American or shall I say indigenous peoples? What shall I say? You know, there's all kinds of different names that people use. They say Native Americans. <laughs> when when we're talking amongst ourselves a lot of yeah. times we just we just call ourselves indians <laughs> okay okay <laughs> <Yeah>. okay <laughs> and uh you know and but when we're talking to other people that are outside of our community we myself i i prefer the term indigenous um okay. in canada they call themselves first nations in australia the aboriginal people call themselves first nations 
Um, mm. But here in the United States, we refer to ourselves as American Indian, Alaska Native. That's kind of the official government. You know, if you look on any government form or, you know, the categories that yeah. there's always one for American Indian and Alaska Native. And so that's mm-hmm. kind of, you know, the official government one. Mm-hmm. But, you know, other people use Native American or they use indigenous. Um, and, you know, it's just kind of like what what people want to be called or yes. what people use. Um, yeah. And, and that's what I want to know. I want to call you what you want to be called, you know. People yeah. <laughs> ask me many times, do you want to be called Black or African American? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. Well, first, go with Gloria. That's first. That's yeah. what I want you to do. So, yeah. Gloria, and I do like Glow now. So, Gloria or Glow. And when you're, we're talking about race, I, I was saying uh, that I was African American. And then a friend of mine who is from Egypt, he said, well, I'm African American too. And he's right. Because his people are from the continent of Africa, just like mine. Yeah. So then I started saying, okay, that there you go. Okay, okay. So then I started saying black African American uh-huh. to just include yeah. everything. Well, see, that's what I like. So I'm like, yeah. what do you like? You know? <laughs> Not all Africans are black. Eh? That's right, honey. Okay. See what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So you can't just say he can check African-American, but that's not all he is. It's it's interesting how we use these terms. So, you know, we've talked about the things that we see and hear about indigenous peoples is so limiting. I want to clear some of that up. So Uh tell me, tell us, if you will, be so kind. What are the similarities between the tribes and how many tribes are there, John? There are 585 federally recognized tribes. That means that they're recognized by the U.S. government as being Native American tribes that that have a sovereign or semi-sovereign status within the United States, you know, kind of a, a nation within a nation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that actually, that concept actually was written into the U.S. Constitution. If you go back and look, they they mention Indian tribes and the way that the Supreme Court has interpreted that over the years is that Native American tribes, Indian tribes, indigenous tribes, um, American indigenous tribes, whatever you want to call them, that they have a special status in the United States, that they have they have a, a semi-sovereign status, you know, they, they, you know, they, they have their, like many tribes, my tribe, the Navajo Nation, some of the bigger tribes, you know, they have their own court systems, they have their own government systems, they have their own social services systems, and, mm-hmm. and they, they, um, they run those um, in a, in a semi-sovereign way. For me, the Blackfeet tribe is located in Montana, and the federally recognized tribes, their responsibility is to the federal government. The federal government can kind of, you know, guide them or tell them what to do, but the state governments can't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a there's a lot of contention between the tribes and the state governments. The state governments, you know, are very often they want to impose on the sovereignty and, you know, the, the tribes and their, all the tribes have legal staff now and they, you know, they push back and they say, you know, that's, that's, that's imposing on our, on our sovereignty. And, 
So what does sovereignty mean? What does sovereignty mean? It just means that as a as a nation that you have the right to determine your own existence and your own um you know your own way of living and things like that within you know within the boundaries of your your nation whether it be a reservation or some some tribes exist but they don't have like a reservation um for example there's a tribe in Montana that's been trying for probably a hundred years or more to get federal recognition so that they would have recognition as a tribe they don't have a land base but they were recently recognized as a as a federally recognized tribe they're called the little shell and they're Ojibwe or Anishinaabe Chippewa however you want to call them they all kind of mean the same thing Mm -hmm. um and they they live in Montana and different you know different parts of Montana different part different cities of Montana but they don't have a land base like you know, the Blackfeet tribe and the Cheyennes and the Crows, and they have a land base in Montana. And so are they nomads? Do they roam around from place to place? They live all over the place, but they have, you know, they, they have a tribal government now. They have a, they just received recognition. And so they have a chairman. Um, I think their, their goal is to try to get some land, you know, to put up some housing and to put up a clinic and things like that for yeah. their, like, um, you know, so my, my tribe and the, the bigger tribes and the tribes that have a big land base like Navajo or Don Autumn or, or, or Blackfeet, you know, they, they have those things. They have health clinics, they have hospitals, they have, you know, they have, a variety of different services that are there um, within their, within their nation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really, you know, that's, that's kind of the political part of it. But then there's also um, like, I, I read this, I did some really interesting research for a project I was working on a couple of years ago. And I was reading an author out of the university of Nebraska um, his name kind of falls out of my head right now, but mm-hmm. um, he wrote that there were three things that Native American tribes shared in common. Okay, the first one is that they they all they they were all structured around what we call natural law or the laws of nature. Um, yeah, that and so they had no use for written laws or you know even like that it was it was the laws of nature and one mm-hmm. one of the examples I'll give you for for that is you know it's it's well documented that diversity is goes through a variety of different um dimensions in any population and one of those is sexual diversity mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you know that the human range of sexual diversity the spectrum of of human sexuality runs all the way from you know, totally heterosexual to totally homosexual, everything in between. You know? mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so that's, that's nature, you know, the way that, the way that traditional tribes would, would think about that, that's nature. And so there were, there were a variety of people that were living in every village and it's, it's well documented in the literature that when when the Europeans first came here, that's one of the first things they noticed is that wow, they have 
men living as women and women living as men and you know and and kind of it kind of reflected the range of sexual diversity that happens in na- in human nature mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. that's an example of that you know and so some of them some of the tribes you know maybe for and like for example in the Navajo creation story there's a whole piece where the the people were delivered by by the the group that we might call gay or you know or transgender okay um, they and and they served a specific role in in those in those stories of helping the Navajo people to to move from one world to the next and so they 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 hold a special place in Navajo ceremonies and mm-hmm. things like that respected. all the way to their respect they were highly respected and highly valued you know, be, for their for their knowledge, they were seen as a bridge between you know between populations, and um, uh, they were also seen as having kind of special gifts in in certain areas that they that they were really, and so you know some of them held them up like that, you know, in 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 high esteem. Other tribes they might not hold them up in high esteem and say they have. You know, they have a place in our traditional stories. They have a place in our ceremonies. Mm-hmm. And almost all of them, you know, they recognized people who were different, whether it was sexually or, or you know, ability-wise or disability-wise, that, you know, that, um, you know, that, that that was nature. And so they, they had a right to exist. And so their, their existence was valued and respected because wow. that was – that was what nature intended. So <laughs> they were they much. were so they were a part much. of nature. Yeah, and so na- natural law was one of the things. And another thing was that I always tell people I'm a communalist. I'm not a communist. I'm not a. I'm not. You know, I'm a communalist. That that native people in this country live together in communal settings, whether mm-hmm. it was longhouses mm-hmm. that 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 housed a number of families that were all related to each other. They lived in these big long houses that, you know, were operated communally and, and that there was a communal sharing of resources um, in, in that, in that family structure, in that social structure, the Blackfeet people, you know, um, historically they lived in teepees, but the way that they lived, they lived in bands, which were essentially, um, extended families, mm-hmm. big extended families of maybe three, four, five, six hundred people that all chose to live together. And so wow. they might have a number of teepees that included, you know, different nuclear families and grandmas and grandpas and, you know, kids and grandkids or whatever. And, and, but, you know, they might be in one teepee, but there were a number of teepees, you know, that, mm-hmm. that and, but, all of the people were related to each other somehow, except for the ones that married in and things like that. Um, and is and that so, still go on today? It that does. Means- you know, I just, I was driving through the Navajo reservation yesterday and I'm always struck when I drive And It's actually true where I'm from too, you know, different families kind of settled in different parts of the mm-hmm. reservation. Mm-hmm. So where I was raised, most of the people that lived around me were my relatives. And that's, mm-hmm. You know, that was the experience of people back in the 
in the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s, you know, until people started moving around like we do today, you know, and, and things like that. But still today you can drive through the reservation and you'll see, um, you'll see a cluster of houses all kind of together over there, you know, and, you know, it's, it, I, I would guess almost a hundred percent that, you know, that's a, that's a family compound of people mm-hmm. that are all, all related to each other and mm-hmm. have chosen to live together in that communal setting, you know, so there it's are kind a of lot the of good things. There are a lot of good things to be said about that. That you were thing talking- about communal sharing of resources. Also yes, is yes. Really, really important. I mean, you know, if somebody didn't have the means because of a disability or because maybe they didn't have a lot of relatives or things like that, you know, that, and, and so the tribe would just kind of take care of them, you know, and, and, and share, there was, there were different ways to distribute wealth and redistribute wealth in the tribes on the Northern Plains. The giveaway um, was really prominent. And so some, like if you wanted to be a leader in, in, in Blackfeet culture, you had to be really generous. You had to, you had to practically give everything that you had away, mm-hmm. you know, to, mm-hmm. to be a leader. Um, and, you know, and you had to take care of the people that you were leading and, you know, almost like they were all your children. Wait um, a minute. Wait a minute. Talk about a concept. The yeah. leader taking care of the people they're yeah. leading. Okay. Yeah. We're not living that right now. I mean, I'm happy for the indigenous peoples, but the rest of us need to be looking and learning. Uh, hello, and remembering that when we vote in November, y'all. Okay, go ahead. And so that whole concept of generosity was yeah. was institutionalized through different ceremonies and rituals. Like I said, on the on the plains, it was the giveaway. The northern the the people along the Northwest coast, you know, all the way from Alaska down to Oregon, you know, they, they did potlatch, which was essentially the same, you know, it was a big, it was a big giveaway ceremony. You know? Okay. The families would sometimes give away everything they own and mm-hmm. that's how they gained prestige, you know, was by sponsoring a potlatch and they would give away everything that they own to the people that came to their potlatch and, so there were lots of ways that were institutionalized for redistribution of wealth and, and things like that. Um, you know what, John, you were talking about the reverence. This is the word that I use, the reverence of people who are, quote, different, unquote. And you and you mentioned about people who we would refer to as gay or being mm-hmm. transgender or something like that. What, what I'm aware of is that also being extended to people that we would say are mentally ill, the <laughs> reverence for those people and yeah. how I have seen them uh, really seen for their gifts and mm-hmm. their connection to more than others can actually see, their ability yeah. to see beyond that. Yeah, and even people with developmental disabilities. Okay. Like mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. one where people are born, you know, with with kind of a certain set of features, they almost look Mongolian. Okay. You know, okay. You mm-hmm, know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about? The, I do. I do. The disability. I do. Down syndrome, we call it. Down medicine. syndrome. That's mm-hmm. it. Down mm-hmm. syndrome. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so they were just, 
and we have a number of them in our community today. And we had some of them that they would dance in all of our dances, you know, the, the celebrations and the dances. And they were just, they were just a part of the community, you know, and, and they were, they were very highly thought of. And, you know, when they, they just had a role. Here's what I'm hearing, John, which takes it to a, a new level for me. And I want to thank you for this. So many times we think that we have to take care of these people. We have to protect them. <laughs> but there's a different level that you're talking about. Yeah. That is the, I, I will use that word reverence again. Uh, seeing these people as, you know, these people have something to contribute. Yeah. Um, and so looking at them as viable members <laughs> of the tribe or our family. And I think sometimes that's missed. I, I, I think we take care of many times people I know take care of people who are quote different physically, uh, mentally, yeah. but I don't know that those people, their difference is seen as something of value. And I, I really love that. I think that is something that we see with indigenous people around the world, you know, more, I see more in if it's the Aboriginal people in Australia I see those kinds of behaviors. Um, the people in different tribes of Black Africa, I see mm -hmm. that happening. And with Native American or the indigenous people of North America, I see that happening as well. But, see, that's beautiful. I, I want to know how did we get away from that? And I think that's something that we can look at you as role models for, uh, for how we can live. We're coming to the end, I can't even believe. <laughs> because I want to, I want to talk with you like for hours and listen to you for hours. I, I'd like you to answer this question. This is the last question, John. What is one thing you wish people who are not indigenous people would know about indigenous people? If you could just know one thing about us, what is it that you would want us to know? I want you to know that there's an incredible resiliency mm. within Native American communities that have survived the Holocaust that happened here with in the last 300 years or 400 years, um, that one of the things that we tell ourselves, and I, I tell people all the time this that I work with, you know, we, we, have, we have a lot of trauma, just like, you know, yes. slavery. Yes. Um, slave, the legacy of slavery, you know, is a, is a legacy of trauma. Yes. You know, and we have a similar legacy of trauma, but it's more around being separated and tore from our land, even tore from our families. I, mm -hmm. I went to a museum in Phoenix yesterday, the Herd Museum. If you ever get a chance, you should go. Okay. Um, they have an exhibit there about the Indian boarding schools. They started in the late 1800s by... General Pratt, and it was based on a military model. And so the way that they saw to assimilate native tribes was to take their children away and take them to these boarding schools in Pennsylvania, Oklahoma, California. There were 25 of them around the country. They lived there under a military model and they were punished if they spoke their language. They, mm. they cut their hair off. They dressed them in, you know, Western clothes. 
They forbid any any kind of culture, any kind of language, any kind. Of, and they didn't get to go home and see their families. My grandmother went into the boarding schools when she was nine years old, and and she never did come out until she married my grandpa and and moved to moved to Montana with him. Um, but you know, some of them were just literally raised in those institutions and. They were they were separated from their families, but there's a resilience, you know. There's yeah. there's certainly there's certainly a ton of trauma from those yeah. experiences, and that's just one, you know. That but that exhibit at the Heard Museum, you know, it 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 exhibits that so well, you know, the the trauma of being separated from your family and you mm-hmm. know reconditioned, you know, resocialized into, um, you know, into Americans that you know. <laughs> that don't, you know, that don't speak their language anymore, that don't, you know. And so, you know, there's there's that legacy left over, but there's there's also this incredible resilience that yeah. you know we've 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 survived all I always tell people, you know, we're the survivors of the ones that they couldn't kill. <laughs> we're the we're the we're the survivors of the ones that got away. The ones yeah. that, you know, the ones that wouldn't wouldn't give up, you know. And, and, and so they, they, um, um, you know, they, that's how they, that's how they survived. And so we inherited that resilience. Also, Mm. we inherited this incredible strength. And in my community that I come from, we have our, we have our ceremonies intact. We have, you know, we're, we're kind of relearning our language, but right. a lot of the Canadian Blackfoot tribes have retained a language much better and even ceremony, but they've come and they've retaught us. We've, we've reintegrated some really major ceremonies with the help of our Canadian brothers and sisters. You know, they come over and, and work with our, work with our young people, work with our people that want to be involved in that. And they teach them. And they've re-implemented some of those societies, some of those ceremonies there where I'm from. It's incredibly hopeful. And it's like, it's like magic. You know, I, I attended one of them where they did it for the first time. It hadn't been done there for 125 years. And it was just so, it was so powerful and so, so reaffirming, you know, and, and it's like, you know, this, this happened, you know, um, it, it's beautiful. I, I will tell you, John, several years ago, more than 10 years ago, and actually it was 1996, I went on a spiritual pilgrimage and I went to the Pueblo of Taos, mm-hmm. New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the area at another Pueblo, I don't remember which there was a ceremony that, that was done only once a month. And I happened to have been there. And just being in the presence, just being on the on the ground of where it was, was so powerful. I couldn't understand what was being said, but there was a sense of community that I felt with my spirit, you know? Um, And then when I went to the Pueblo of Taos, I was privileged to go um, and people are selling things from their homes. Um, And so I met this woman, a beautiful woman, Um, And she looked at me and there was a connection that we had. And she said to me, little sister, it's good to see you again. 
John, I want you to know that I dissolved into a brown puddle on the ground. I said, honey, it was so beautiful. Um, okay, we, we have to end. We have to end. Is there anything that the rest of us can be doing to support this resurgence? Thank goodness, this recapturing, this, I, I don't even know what to call it, of, of Indian culture. What it's a renaissance. You Thank you. A renaissance. What yeah. can we do, the rest of us, to help? Just give me one thing we can do, and then we got to go. Well, when I first started doing community development work, I remember this. Uh, I went to this conference in Seattle, and there was a, a Hispanic man there that, you know, that worked with the Hispanic neighborhoods in Seattle and that area. And one of the things he said was, you know, if you're going to do this kind of work with communities, you know, if you if you are unable to join the community where they are, yeah, then yeah. you should find a different line of work. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. we've had so many people that come into our communities and rather than joining with our communities with that incredible spirit of survival and resiliency that we have instead of but also the you know the trauma that goes along with with Absolutely. what happened, Absolutely. you know, that to be able to join with the community where they are rather than where we think they should be or where yes. we want them to be. Yes. And he said, yes. you know, you, 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 you don't need to do this work. You're doing more harm than you're doing good. Mm-hmm. And so I've mm-hmm. always, I've always retained that, you know, and it, it's turned out to be true. And so it's really helped me to, I've, I've worked in hundreds and hundreds of native communities, but as you know, I've worked with, many corporations and, and, you know, just a variety of different, um, just a variety of different arenas that, you know, when you go into an arena like that, you have to be able to join people where they are rather than your, rather than what your assumptions or what your, you know, what your previous learning would tell you about, about these people, you know, Mm -hmm. you have to get to know the people and to, Mm -hmm. and to join with them. And the only way to do that is to get in there. And, and sometimes it gets really dirty, you know, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. there's, there's this incredible strength, but there's also this incredible pain and trauma, you know, if you can't, if you can't learn to understand that, you know, you're going to have a really hard time working in, in my community, you know, you're going to have a hard time seeing the strength, the incredible strength and resilience that's there. If all you're focused on is the trauma and the destruction, that's Mm -hmm. there for sure. Mm -hmm. But if that's all you focus on, you're missing the most important thing. And so the work that we do, you know, I love the whole concept of strength based, but you know, that's, that's what, that's what that tells me that, you know, if we can, if we can focus on people's strengths and their resiliencies and get to know those and then, you know, use that as a way to get to know, they're not going to show you their trauma right away, (laughs) but if you can get to know people, you know, on who they are and their strengths, they'll eventually let you know who they are um, completely, you know, and that you can understand, you can understand communities more completely and more wholly. Um, John, I, here's here's what I'm loving about what you just said. And, you know, I love words. I don't know if you remember that about me, <laughs> but the word of community, um, I look at that as what is our common unity mm-hmm. and connecting with people human to human 
And uh, the podcast that we did just before this was, I called it a banquet of love. And so when we connect around those appreciations and also acknowledge the stuff that is ugly, then I know that we can all be blessed because of it and be better because Mm -hmm. of it. I want you to know that I'm better because of you spent this time with me today on this podcast and with our team. I thank you so much for the blessing of a, a broader, deeper understanding of the communities and the uh, of the indigenous Native American people, First Nation people. I thank you so much. And, and I want to leave you with this. Please know that there's a hug in your future, John. <laughs> if you want one, okay? I'm just oh, saying. Always, always. From you, Glow. Yes. <laughs> I look wonderful. forward to it. I look You're forward wonderful. to seeing you again. Take care, my darling. Be safe. I feel like I've been sipping on a fine liqueur. Speaking with my brother, John Bird, speaking with him and learning more about the indigenous culture was beautiful and some moments of pain as well. But here are the greatest takeaways. The resilience of the indigenous people, the incredible strength, all the things that they have survived. You know, it's it's one thing when you're living on the land to survive and thrive through the things of nature, but they have used the laws of nature to survive and thrive through things that have been the trauma of reconditioning, of people stripping them of their culture, even to cutting of their hair and changing of language and losing, stripping of everything. And through it all, having that heart of giving and love and seeing people so inclusively and working together to celebrate life, to honor all people in their tribes, people who are marginalized by other people, uh, people who have physical, mental disabilities, many times are marginalized by other people, or as I said, just taken care of. Let me make you comfortable. But they go beyond that and they take and look at those people as valuable parts of their community. They look at the common unity between them and celebrate and uplift them. There's so much we could learn from our indigenous brothers and sisters. I'm so grateful that John came to talk about the community of the Native American tribes. But what I learned was the common unity that they have with all of us and we with them. I hope you all enjoyed this. I'm feeling a little emotional right now. I hope you enjoyed it. It was educational and it was food for my soul. And you know, the last thing I want to say to you is there's a hug in your future. If you want it or not, I got it for you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Bye-bye till the next time.